Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, as we continue through Mark's Gospel, we are in chapter 11, and we're going to begin at verse 27 this evening. Mark chapter 11 and verse 27. And we're going to be reading, we're not going to read it right now, but we're going to be looking all the way down to chapter 12 and verse 12. And if you're in the church Bible, that's page 1016. I think uh, I've probably would say, well, I, I certainly would say I've visited most of you who are here this evening. But imagine if my visit to your house was somewhat different. Imagine if I just walked in without knocking, just walked in your house, put the kettle on, I made myself a cup of coffee. Didn't say hello, I just came in and did that. Then I went and I opened your fridge and take out some food, put it on a plate. I sit down in your front room and start eating it. Put my feet up on your table as I'm eating my food, well, your food and drinking your coffee. I don't speak to you, but I pick up your phone and I start making some phone calls to some of my friends who I used to know down in Devon. And after I put the phone down, I then ask, well, oh, how are you doing? Well, you might think, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And of course, if anyone did that in my house, I would wonder who do they think they are as well. No, no doubt some of you would say, that's okay, Steve, you can come in and have a coffee and, you know, all that kind of thing. But you would wonder, wouldn't you, who do you think you are? Because I have no authority to just walk into someone's house and do that. In fact, if I even did that in my own house without saying hello to my family, I'd be in trouble there as well, wouldn't I? But this is a little bit how the religious leaders in Mark thought about Jesus. He had come into the temple, as they viewed it, their temple, the house of God. He'd turned the tables over. He'd driven people out, which we looked at last time. He had accepted the praise of people, and he was teaching with authority that came from nobody that they recognised. And so as Jesus, in this chapter, as we will see in a moment, walked into the temple courts again, the Sanhedrin came with a question, which we look at in verse 27, or verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Or in other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are coming into our temple, turning over the tables, driving out moneylenders, teaching all these things? Who do you think you are? Well, over the next section of Mark, Jesus actually has seven different arguments with these various religious leaders. Sometimes these arguments are initiated by Jesus. Other times they are the religious leaders trying to catch Jesus out. And in this passage tonight, the Pharisees, chief priests, and teachers of the law are trying to catch him out with their question about his authority. And this group are called the Sanhedrin, and they were the ruling council of the Jews. And they were threatened by Jesus. Their way of life, the things they knew, their authority was threatened by what Jesus was doing. And in verse 18 of chapter 11, we read that they wanted to kill him. 
And in this first question, they aimed to catch him out and make him say something that was worthy of death. And although it seems in this section, at first, that Jesus would not show by what authority he does the things he does, we shall see that in his wisdom, in the way he answers them, he makes it ever so clear exactly where his authority comes from and does so without them having any excuse to put him to death. So we see by what authority Jesus did the things he did. And in the first section of this passage, we see the authority of Jesus. So let's read verses 27 to 33 as Jesus really answers the question, who do you think you are? They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven? Or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, Well, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So these questions were not to find out, really, about the authority of Jesus to check out if he was all right. This was to try and catch him out. There was nothing sincere about these questions from the Sanhedrin. They were deceitful. They were crafty. They were trying to get him to say that he was the Messiah so that they could ridicule him, discredit him, and accuse him of blasphemy so that he could be killed. And there were two questions here. One was, by what authority do you do these things? And two, who gave you the authority? Now, a teacher or a rabbi would always teach on the authority of someone else. Whenever they taught, they would quote from other people all the time. Their authority would come from those people they quoted or from the teacher that taught them in their um, you know, Bible school or whatever it was. But Jesus didn't have any of these earthly credentials. He did not claim that any earthly person gave him the authority that he had. And the religious leaders knew that Jesus could only say that he did these things by God's authority. And that his authority came from God himself. And they knew that if he said this, they could accuse him of blasphemy. And if he couldn't claim that it was from anybody, he kept quiet, then they could accuse him of having no authority at all. And they would discredit him. Basically, this was a trap. It was a trap. A bit of a catch-22 situation where Jesus, if he says something, he's in trouble. And if he says nothing... He's in trouble. And so Jesus replied, as he often does, by asking a question with a question. And this isn't him avoiding answering, but a really clever way of answering the question without falling into their trap. 
he would not play their game. And in doing so, he acted with authority. He asked them a question about John's baptism, whether it was from heaven or whether it was from human origin. Now, when Jesus is talking about John's baptism, he's talking about John the Baptist. The same John the Baptist that we saw was beheaded by King Herod when he spoke ill of his relationship with his uh, brother's wife, Herodias. And Jesus is not just talking about being immersed in water, in baptism. When he talks of John's baptism, he's talking about John's ministry as a whole. So he's talking about what John said about Jesus. John said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. John talked about Jesus and he talked about him as God. It means that what he taught was true. That, he was the for, that John the Baptist was the forerunner to Messiah. It means that what he did was true. That when he baptized Jesus, the voice came from heaven and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. All those things that John did, all those things John said, all the things that he taught about Jesus being greater than he, all those things, Jesus says, is it from heaven or is it of human origin? And the reason Jesus asked this is because John and Jesus both linked themselves together. John said that Jesus, uh, that John said that he himself was sent from God, but he submitted to Jesus, who he said was mightier and better than he. The implication here in this passage in Mark is that Jesus and John have the same answer to that question. They are both sent from God. And Jesus, from being in a catch-22 situation himself, puts the questioners in that same situation. Because they couldn't give an answer. If they admitted that it was from heaven, Jesus would ask, then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe all that he said about me? But if they said it was from human origin, well, it would upset the people. Notice how uh, this sentence ends when it says about upsetting the people. If you read verse 32, it says, if we say of human origin, and then it's just dot, dot, dot. Can you see that in your Bibles? In other words, they couldn't, even bring themselves to say what they were thinking. And Mark fills us in. They were scared of the people. You see, they were people pleasers. If the people rejected them, they would lose everything. They would lose their authority, their position, all those things. They were people pleasers. So they couldn't say that Jesus was from God because that would be admitting that Jesus was from God, which would ruin their way of life and they couldn't admit that John was not from God because they would be ruined by the displeasure of the people so they didn't answer his question they feigned ignorance by saying we don't know we don't know Jesus showed them up here they were too proud for the truth so they were made to look foolish because they should have been able to answer this question they would never say I don't know These are the people that have the answers. These are the religious leaders. And so Jesus didn't answer their question either. 
And this isn't Jesus being awkward or antagonistic, but he's making them see that he will not play their game. He is acting in the authority that he claims to have. Now, I remember when I uh, used to work in IT, I used to have to travel to different places. And I used to have to go to some places, and my job was to improve their processes that they have in their company. And some people that were there had been using these processes for decades sometimes. And for them to change was a real hard thing for them to do. And one company I remember that I went to one time had this girl that just, she just, I guess she just didn't like me, which doesn't happen often. No, I'm only joking. Um, but she just didn't seem to take to what I was trying to do. I would ask her to do something and she would ignore me. We'd have meetings and she wouldn't, wouldn't even look at me or acknowledge me. And whenever I was not there, she would just do something completely different to what she was supposed to do or be telling other people how rubbish it was that I was here. You see, she didn't accept the authority that was given me because it would mean completely changing what she had done for a long, long time. And I understood where she was coming from and I I did sympathize. But she just couldn't bring herself to change, couldn't bring herself to do something different and therefore she couldn't accept the authority that I had and refused to submit to it. And, And that's a little bit like the Sanhedrin here. They looked at Jesus... They look to his authority and they realize if we, have to, if we submit to this, everything we've known is going to change. Everything that we, all the authority we have is going, to be in, is going to go to him. People aren't going to listen to us in the way they used to. Jesus' authority did not suit them. In fact, as far as they saw it, it harmed them. And sometimes Jesus' authority can be a bit like that with us. If we follow the authority of Christ, it may harm our earthly reputation amongst our friends. It may cost us materially or cost us with relationships. But that doesn't mean that we should reject his authority. How do you respond to the authority of Jesus? I'm sure most of you here this evening would say that Jesus is king as we talked about this morning. I'm sure most of you would say that you believe that Jesus has authority. But if we really believe he has authority, this changes the way we live our lives, doesn't it? If we believe everything that he says in his word, then we should be obeying it, shouldn't we? Even the bits that we don't like or the bits that are hard. We know what Jesus says about sex about drunkenness, about greed, about loving others, and about all sorts of other things. We know what he says, but does it have authority in your life? Do you follow what he says? It means obeying it at the expense of pleasing other people. The Sanhedrin were people pleasers. They couldn't bring themselves to say that John's baptism wasn't from heaven, not because they necessarily believed it, but because they wanted to please other people. And if we are people pleasers like the Sanhedrin, then we reject God's authority to please other people. So we won't obey commands such as sharing our faith or not bowing to the peer pressure around us or going along with the office gossip and so on because we want to please others and not be under the authority of God. How do you respond to the authority of Christ?
And although Jesus doesn't answer their question directly, as we come to chapter 12, we really see his answer in this parable. So let's read uh, the parable together. John, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 12 and verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants came to one another and said, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Notice the language here is familiar to the people of Israel because it is exactly like it is described in Isaiah chapter 5, which we read earlier. In Isaiah chapter 5, we read clearly there, because Isaiah tells us that Israel is described as the vineyard of which God is the owner. And in Isaiah, he found only sour grapes. So he said that he would destroy it in judgment. And this same imagery is used here in the parable, which is why towards the end, The Pharisees, they just knew that, yeah, this is about us. This is about us. It's as if, you know, if I had stolen something from the fridge and everyone knew about it, it's like someone standing at the front and saying, I'm going to tell you a story about someone that stole from the fridge. You know, I'd, (laughs) I'd be like, okay, you know, I know this is about me. It's exactly what it was like here. They knew Jesus was talking about them. And this parable has two parts. We see the rejection of Jesus and the victory of Jesus' authority. So let's first of all look at the rejection of Jesus' authority. The man who planted a vineyard and went away, this man is God. And he lets out his vineyard to tenants who are the children of Israel. Now when someone lets out a vineyard, they expect a crop. And so the man sends servants to collect the fruit. Now these servants are the Old Testament prophets who God sent to Israel to encourage them to live for the glory of God and to pronounce judgment on them when they didn't. So this parable, if you like, in the first part is a history of Israel in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that time and time again God sent prophets to Israel 
to pronounce judgment on them and to encourage them if they didn't follow God's ways, um, or, sorry, to pronounce judgment when they didn't follow God's ways and to encourage them to live for the glory of God. And time and time again, the prophets in the Old Testament are treated shamefully. They are beaten and they are victims even of attempted murder. So, for example, you see Jeremiah. You may remember Jeremiah was thrown into a pit and left to die. Elijah was chased by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who wanted to kill him. In 2 Chronicles 24, we read how a prophet Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, was, uh, was stoned. And then the final prophet was really John the Baptist, and he was beheaded. Time and time again, God would send his prophets. Time and time again, they were beaten, killed, treated shamefully. So the owner, it says, has one left to send, his son. Now in this story, this would have been completely unexpected. And if you think about it, you can see why. If the owner had sent servant after servant after servant, and they were all getting killed, why would he send his son? Why would he think that it would be any different? What kind of an owner sends a son? An invasion force, maybe. Hired assassins, for sure, but a son? This would have shocked the audience. And it says he sent the son who he loved. And Jesus reveals here his relationship to his father, one of love. And it's very obvious here to us and to these religious leaders that Jesus was talking of himself as the son. He sends his son because his son speaks with the authority and in the name of the owner. He comes in the father's name. They will respect my son, he said. And they should have respected the son. In any kind of normal way of things, the son would have been respected. But they didn't respect him. They tried to kill him and thought that if they did that, they would have the vineyard for themselves. In Galilee, the, the vineyards of, of absentee owners, if they were, the, the owner was gone long enough, the tenants would actually inherit the vineyard if it didn't have an heir. So if there was no heir and the owner was gone for, for such a long time, the tenants would get the vineyard. And that's what they were trying to do here in the, in the parable. And that's really what the Pharisees, the, uh, the scribes and, and chief priests were trying to do. They were trying to take God's kingdom and keep it for themselves. And so they wanted to kill the son who claimed it as his own. And so they killed him. And this is another prediction of the death of Jesus. Now the biggest problem that these tenants had is that they had no fear or respect of the man. Or they had no fear and no respect of God. They completely disrespected God again and again and again. They did so throughout all the Old Testament. And now they disrespect God in the person of Jesus. They reject the authority of Jesus and therefore they reject the authority of God. And it's clear who Jesus is claiming to be. He is the Son. And when he tells us he's the Son, the question of where his authority comes from is obvious. It comes from the man. It comes from God. 
In a sports team, the authority of the manager comes from the owner of the team. And the players have to respect what the manager says because he has the authority of the owners. But there is instances in all sorts of sports where the players start ignoring the manager's instructions. They'll talk about him behind his back or even publicly to the press. They disrespect both the manager and the owners of the team when they do this. You see it often, don't you? And whenever this happens, those teams always lose. No team loses when the manager and the owners are being completely disrespected. And this is like us with the authority of Jesus. When we reject his authority and do our own thing, then we disrespect the owner of our world and our lives, God, and we end up being the losers ourselves. If we completely reject him, then the Bible tells us that we will be judged and condemned to an eternity in hell. But even those of us who follow Jesus as our king, we sometimes reject the authority of God in our lives, don't we? We do so when we ignore God's call to repentance. We do so when we refuse to give up on things that we know we shouldn't be doing. We reject God's authority when we say no to something that he has commanded us to do. We reject God's authority when we treat shamefully those who try to lovingly rebuke us, like the Old Testament prophets. Sometimes God will send someone into your life to lovingly rebuke you. And we reject the authority of God when we just brush them off and tell them to go away. We should appreciate and accept the loving rebuke. Notice loving rebuke of our brothers and sisters in the church. Not nitpickers who just want to you know, moan about things, but someone that lovingly is coming to you to rebuke you because they see something in your life that is dishonoring God. We reject the authority of God when we tell those people just to get lost. So do not reject the authority of Jesus as our king. But notice that the parable does not end with the rejection of Jesus' authority. It actually ends with something glorious, the victory of Jesus' authority. You see, God will not stand idly by while people continue to reject him. And the Bible is clear that there is judgment coming on those who reject God. What will the owner, it says, of the vineyard do with those tenants who killed his servant and then killed his son? When it says he will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. In the same way that they have rejected the man, the man rejects the tenants. In the same way they have rejected God, God rejects them. Those who reject the authority of God will be rejected by God. And one day, if we never submit to Jesus as our Lord, you will be destroyed as well. But what of the vineyard? What happens to that vineyard with all the tenants gone? Well, it says the owner will give it to someone else. And these other people that are talked about in this parable are the Gentiles or those who are not Jews. The vineyard is not lost. God's plan of salvation continues, but the tenancy is transferred 
to someone else. Now, does this mean that God has completely rejected Israel and has, uh, because he, you know, because we're, we're a plan B, because plan A, Israel, did not work? Well, no. You see, the purpose of God using Israel was not so that only Israel could be saved, but that, so that they could be a blessing to all nations. They were supposed to be the light to the whole world, but they have not been that. Remember when we looked last time at the temple, they were supposed to be, uh, they had a, a court for the Gentiles where the Gentiles weren't allowed to go anywhere near the holy place of God. They were shut out. But that was not the way it was supposed to be. They were supposed to be a light for the world so that they could, the world could know God. So God judges them by causing others to be that light. But that doesn't mean that the way we come to faith in, in God is any different because we're not Israel or are. It's the same. But now we are that light that God has placed in the world to show Jesus. But what of the one who was rejected? What of the son? Well, Jesus asked these leaders a question. Have you not read the scriptures? Notice the irony there. This is the religious leaders. Have you not read the scriptures? Do you not read your Bible? He then quotes from Psalm 118, verses 20 to 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, for us, the cornerstone is the the one that we place at the bottom around which all others are built. And apparently, uh, from what I've read, for the Israelites, actually, it was slightly different. To them, a cornerstone was the final stone, which was the culmination of what was built. But either way... It's, it, it, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? The one that was rejected has become the most important one. And whether it's the first one or the last one, it refers to Jesus, who is the first and the last. That stone, like Jesus, was examined, but it was rejected. But it has become the cornerstone. And our response should be that of the psalmist. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, Jesus was rejected, He was delivered up to be crucified and he died willingly in our place on the cross. But on the third day, he rose again. He defeated sin, he defeated death and he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning forever. And we looked at a little bit of that this morning when we talked about Jesus being our king who rules and reigns forever. And ever. And the wonderful thing is, for those who have accepted the authority of Jesus and have followed him as king, we will be with him forever too. Hallelujah. We can praise the Lord, can't we, that we will be with Jesus forever. Because it's interesting to note how that the worst that people can do to Jesus results in the greater victory for God. So he was killed, but he rose again. He was shamed but now he receives glory and honor in the highest place. He was mocked, but now he receives praises for all eternity, where everyone will bow down and worship him. The worst that they can do to Jesus just results in more glory, more and more and more glory. And of course, we can say with verse 11, the Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Well, after this, the Sanhedrin looked for a way to arrest him, 
because they knew he spoke against them. And I wonder, is he speaking against you this evening? But they were afraid of the crowd, so they went away. They were people pleasers, not God pleasers. And we should not allow people pleasing to stand in the way of the glory of God in our lives. Is God speaking to you? Perhaps you've spent your life rejecting God. Well, one day, if you do not submit, he will reject you. But in the end, as much as you may reject God, the victory is God's. They killed him, he rose again. They mocked him, he receives glory. He is victorious forever. And for us too, this side of heaven, as we said this morning, we see, just, we see wicked things going on. We see suffering amongst even God's people. And we wonder, why is this all happening? When will this all end? You know, there's days, isn't there, when for all of us, we, we wake up or we go to bed and the day's just been appalling. Sometimes, because we're Christians, and we say, Lord, will this ever end? Well, the answer, unequivocally, is yes. Yes. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The worst that the world can throw at us, the Bible says, doesn't even, isn't even worthy of being compared to the glory that will be revealed. So this side of heaven, we need to make sure we keep the future glory in our minds because Christ is victorious. And one day, we will share that victory with him in heaven. It's wonderful, isn't it? That we can have victory with Jesus, the one they crucified, the one they mocked, the one they beat, the one they rejected, is the chief cornerstone. And the Lord has done this. It is marvellous in our eyes. Well, we're going to sing as we close, acknowledging first of all that he is Lord. And then we'll sing together, thine be the glory. So let's stand together and sing.